For us, promoting justice for all isn't just a slogan. It's a fundamental part of who we are. Since 1949, Hiscock Legal Aid Society has had thousands of people contribute to our organization's story. Here, you'll meet those who've supported our work, our clients, and have taught us a thing or two along the way. Welcome to the Justice for All Podcasts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Justice for All, a podcast of the Hiscock Legal Aid Society. I am thrilled to be speaking today to my former boss um, and somebody who was with the Legal Aid Society for many years, saw it through one of the most challenging periods in in human history, um, and is here to share a little bit about her journey. Linda Guerin is with us today. Linda, thanks for being here. Thank you, Jason. Really glad to be here. What I would like to do, Linda, if it's okay, I start with everybody learning a little bit about their background, where they grew up. And I know from having worked for you for several years that you and I share a bit of a New Jersey connection. So you grew up in Bloomfield. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, we moved to Bloomfield when I was just about to go into first grade, uh, having been born in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, home of Little League Baseball, by the way. Okay, okay. Founded by my great uncle, uh, Carl Stutz. But that's oh, another okay. story. Yeah. Um, and then we came to Bloomfield. My father was a Wall Street advertising madman. And... Uh, we, uh, we, we came to Bloomfield, where I grew up uh, through elementary to, through high school, and it was uh, really great in that uh, living in that suburb of New York City, so many resources available, but still a really great little neighborhood, very diverse neighborhood, um, and lots of fun. We had a lot of fun all the way through 12, you know, uh, first grade through 12. Yeah. And uh, then on to college from there. And I found, as somebody who also shares a bit of a Bloomfield connection with you, I also uh, lived in Bloomfield for a bit and still live nearby. I found it was really nice to have access to everything that New York City can provide. But it had a much more, for, at least for me, like a more suburban, laid back feel. Like when I get off of New Jersey Transit, I feel this, yes. like just the sense of calm. Did you feel that at all? Did you enjoy being in the suburbs? Because I really enjoyed that. Yeah, there are you know all these beautiful old trees and um, sidewalks to walk on, and you know places to walk your dog. And um, there was the women's club and the, mm -hmm. um, of course, Bloomfield College uh, mm -hmm. was uh, already a thriving little campus then. Um, and then of course. In my teenage years, we could jump on the bus and go into New York City, where yeah. you could have some more exciting, uh, sure. exciting times, and also go see the Radio City Music Hall show at, at uh, Christmas time, and um, the Apollo Theater, where we saw yeah. you know, many great artists, and uh, and even with that, the Four Seasons came and and. Um, performed on, on the in the auditorium at Bloomfield High School. And, oh. you know, I won some tickets to, to go see them. Uh, so you could have that. Seals and Crofts played at our, yeah. um, our uh, you know, senior prom. Yep. So it was just a great, great place. 
So, Linda, tell me, too, when you, you, you as you mentioned, went and uh, lived in Bloomfield through elementary, middle, and high school, when you went on to college, did you know at the end of high school that you wanted to become a lawyer? I did not, but okay. I, did, I did think that I was going to be a child advocate or family advocate. Um, I ended up majoring in um, special education and psychology um, and saw myself either being a special education teacher or um, educational psychologist in a school setting. Um, so it was only after graduating from college that, uh, you know, I began to think that it's, it's great to be a teacher and impart um, what you know and, and, and bring, um, you know, a good mind and, and, and a good sense of compassion and, and sense of justice to the classroom. I also, I also started to feel that maybe I could do more um, advocating for children and family rights in, in the courtroom. And so that's what brought me to law school. And you hear of so many people I've, I've spoken to a number of folks for our first season of this who mentioned that they did not intend to ever become a lawyer. And it sounds like your journey through it's a special education, psychology, was there a moment for you when you were like, when, you know, a moment where you were sitting there and you're like, I could do more uh, if I went, if I went to law school or was it more of an iterative process over many years where you, you know, were working and then decided ultimately that law school would be better. Take me through that, that, that process, if you don't mind. Well, I think when I, the first Clinton, the first indication I had heading in that direction was uh, when I was doing a, a practicum and I was placed at uh, Woodbridge, the Woodbridge School, residential school. Okay. And I was supposed to go in and create lesson plans for um, very unfortunate, profoundly, you know, as they used to say in those days, retarded mentally, mentally retarded, it was to say in those days, um, going back many decades, um, developmentally delayed, I guess, is uh, what, what's referred, what's used now. Um, but these were, these were children with severely handicapping conditions and uh, living in a residential setting. And it, it just didn't seem right. That, and you know it it wasn't right um, the way they were really housed um, in this facility and I was just a young person and I had never seen such a thing and I I was just appalled and I was um, you know my sense of justice told me that that just can't be right that we treat children this way that we treat human beings this way so it was on from there and that's what encouraged you it sounds like that was sort of the moment for you when you decided you wanted to do something different and yeah. you decided to go to law school now you went to su law what prompted you to did you know that you wanted to come to you know frigid colds uh, syracuse new york uh, did you apply to a number of places what what 
um, what got you to, to Syracuse in central New York? Um, so uh, I guess we'll say family concern, the family uh, migration <laughs> up north. Okay. Um, sure. I did, you know, I did get into other uh, schools, but um, I, I didn't. No one warned me about the winters in Syracuse, so I said, "Well, this is good." <laughs> so surprise, I, oh, yeah. there. Yeah. Um, you know, still somebody full of uh, trust and wonder. I said, yeah. "Okay, go to Syracuse," and I and I really, I really loved going to Syracuse for sure, and living in Syracuse all the, all these decades. Um, I just, uh, I remember telling my mother, I'm going to, I'm going to law school in Syracuse. And she just said, I heard they have a lot of snow. <laughs> she heard right. Yeah. Let me ask you, Linda, the, obviously the, you, you, you stayed in law and had a distinguished career in law for, for decades, but did you enjoy law school? I've asked everybody this question who has been on here, who's been a lawyer, and I'm curious to know about the law school process. Did you find it enjoyable or did you see it sort of as an end? I mean, as much as anyone likes school, yeah. and Fair I enough. like school, I, I okay. like um, learning is good, um, but um, it, I do, looking back, realize that it didn't do a whole lot to prepare me for what it would be like to be a family court and criminal defense lawyer. Uh, it, it does teach you or it does, it does prompt you or, or uh, guide you to problem solve, to read cases and try and see what those cases mean. But um, the application part was uh not so much there. Um, it was just right after I graduated that there were more clinical offerings. And in fact, I um, did act as a supervising attorney for the law clinic at SU for a couple of years and lectured in uh, lawyering skills and counseling. Uh, but those things I learned out in, you know, in court, working with real, you know, actual clients. Mm -hmm. um, so I think now that SU has a lot more of those clinical experiences, that's really a great place to, uh, you know, to learn what you need to know. I was, you beat me to it, but I was going to ask you next about, because I saw that you were a lecturer and you also worked, it looks like in the juvenile advocacy clinic yeah. at Syracuse. And if I'm hearing what you're saying correctly, it sounds like those clinics are sort of where folks can see where the rubber meets the road. So you're getting the preparation in class, but how do you actually apply that? Um, it sounds like is is seen in these clinics. Was that your experience? Yes. And, um, you know, the actual cases, actual clients coming in, being in court, uh, being with the other, the opposing counsel, on the case, the judge, uh, interacting with a judge, uh, investigating the facts of a case and actually getting a case ready for trial. Um, not just a trial practice course with a prefab, you know, fact pattern, but uh, facts of an actual case and family court facts that seem to change all the time. And, uh, you know, uh, up till the moment before trial. Um, I just, yeah, that's, that's the greatest experience. And 
I'd like to talk, if I could, a little bit about, because you've, you've held a number of roles at, at, at the Hiscock Legal Aid Society, most recently, obviously, president and CEO. You also um, have worked for many years in private practice. So let's start with private practice, and we'll talk a little bit about, uh, not a little bit, we'll probably spend most of the conversation talking about legal aid. But you um, began in private practice. What was that like? What did you learn through doing that? What would you recommend for people who may be interested in working in private practice? Well, the first thing I would recommend is uh, go work at Legal Aid before you go okay. into practice. Um, okay. You have some uh, basis for comparison. Um, so going into private practice with only a year or two of experience, well, you really learn you have to relearn very quickly and you can make some mistakes that uh, you would really hope not to make. Um, luckily, nothing that affected a, a client, but certainly things that make the, the uh, business of running a practice very challenging, where if you start in a place like Legal Aid, and that's the great thing about Legal Aid, um, and always has been a place where people can come and work for a few years and then see do I want to have my own practice? Do I want to make a career out of this? Um, and back to being in your own practice, I mean, the good thing about it is um, it really gave me that I needed to also uh, parent three kids and um, have that flexibility uh, where you could get get home and take care of a sick child and work from home. It was not, you know, we're talking 30 years ago, Oh, sorry, 40 years ago now, mm -hmm. where um, there was no such thing as remote uh, remote appearances or um, telecommuting. Um, there barely were computers. <laughs> All right, well, now we're really <laughs> bad to be stuck in this way. But um, now, you know, there is a lot more flexibility built in, um, even, even when you work for say the county attorney's office or a place like Legal Aid. Um, so that's a good thing. Um, but still there's not, when you're in your own practice as a newer attorney, you don't have as much of, there's your colleague right next door that you can say, hey, I've got this kind of case, ever have that case? Or there's your supervisor just down the hall. Um, or even there's the president and CEO because we have a very, you know, um, life and death kind of situation, somebody threatening harm, somebody threatening self-harm. Um, that's the support that is really lacking in your own practice um, rather than working for an agency or a, or a firm. Um, or if, you know, if what you want to do is go into public service kind of work, that's where a place like Legal Aid is, is the best. And I'd like to talk with you quite a bit more about your time at Legal Aid, you joined um, the organization. If my research is correct, you joined in 2012 mm -hmm. uh, and worked as a senior attorney, as a supervising attorney in the family court program, then obviously spent the last five years of your career with us uh, as president and CEO. My question as it relates to this is you speak um, really highly, and obviously you care a lot about legal aid. That's very obvious to anyone who's ever met you. Why did you decide to come to, to legal aid? 
what prompted you to decide that this could be a good chapter in your in your career? At the time, uh, in the fairly recent past, uh, Legal Aid had taken over the family court contract with the county, where um, some extremely zealous, well-trained, dedicated, um, in most cases, newer attorneys, but also many very experienced attorneys, really constituted like a core group of people representing parents and families in family court. Prior to that time, it had been left to uh, a list of attorneys that you know, indicated their willingness to take family court cases, but they worked in their own private practices. So again, that sort of, you see that dichotomy between the private practice and, and the, um, a practice like legal aids. And I, being somebody very uh, dedicated to keeping going with this work, but yet, you know, on and off feeling a great deal of pressure sometimes working sort of in your, you know, working isolated doing that work. I just said, you know, that's the team I want to be part of. And my kids were now, you know, uh, much older and no, not needing as much me running back and forth between my office and home. And I just said, if this, the time feels like it's right, right now. And so I just, I called up and said, can I come in and interview for a position? And I'm so glad I did. And in doing that, obviously you worked as we said, in a, in a few different capacities, but you served as the supervising attorney for the family court program for a number of years at Legal Aid. And I guess the question that I would that would ask of you is, tell me a little bit about that experience and tell me um, if you can, I know having, having worked for you that you're very passionate about the law in general and that you have a heart for the family court program. And if you don't mind, Share a little bit about that with, with me. So, you know, it, seemed, it certainly was kind of a logical progression at some point, uh, given my experience and um, extreme interest in family court, um, mm -hmm. that I was lucky enough to become the supervisor of the family court program. And, um, you know, just like out in the in the larger community, um, in terms of all these areas of practice that there are, you know, matrimonial, civil, criminal, uh, immigration, um, all there's so many different kinds of practice. Family court practice many times feels like, um, you know, the most the most burdened the most uh, misunderstood in, in certain ways. Of course, they, all areas of practice, especially when you're representing people in need who can't afford an attorney, that carry their own burdens. Um, but the family court practice, uh, has it's just been a long haul getting, getting the courts and they're coming along and really, relatively speaking, in leaps and bounds compared to when I started 40 years ago. And actually applying the law and, and acknowledging and recognizing the, the constitutional and due process rights that are at stake when you talk about separating families, when you, when you talk about 
um, depriving a parent forever of parental rights. That is, this is the same level of constitutional rights as you would see in the criminal law, the same dire circumstances as you, as you would see in someone being deported or um, someone going to jail for a long period of time, being deprived of their liberty. Um, so at Legal Aid, the, the people that sign up for that kind of work have the same sense of justice and of um, seeing the same sense of urgency um, that I always felt. Um, and working in that program, it, it was just great to be able to work with other attorneys who felt as strongly as I did and really wanted to work hard at preserving these rights and asserting them in court when other attorneys and judges wouldn't necessarily have seen that kind of practice before. Um, so, you know, there's still people there doing that same work as we speak and others who have gone on um, to take what they learn there and bring it to, you know, the state statewide um, advocacy and, and advocacy in other counties of the state. So, you know, um, just very honored and lucky to have been able to work with that, that group of people. And I, it seems to me too, there's nothing better than work with folks who are capable, who are passionate yeah. about the work that is being done. And it sounds like that's what you're describing with the family court program. Indeed. And, and um, even when people can't find, the, find it in themselves to stay longer than two or three years, somebody working even a year in that program and, and uh, handling the large caseload and, and interacting with clients who are really going through probably some of the worst experiences that anyone would experience, such as domestic violence or losing uh, the care and custody of a child. Um, and hanging in there with them and, and, and uh, being alongside at their worst time in life and, and giving them not just good legal advice, but their compassion and their concern. Um, it's just, just great people to work with. And the great people that um, you worked with, you continued working. Obviously, the next stop for you was the president and CEO of Hiscock Legal Aid Society. You began in February of 2017, uh, if my research is correct. And I want to talk about a number of things, but you started in February of 2017, and then the pandemic happened, and all of our lives changed. But before we get to that, you are somebody who speaks really passionately about being in court, working directly with clients. And obviously the role of president and CEO is a little different. You can continue to have a really profoundly positive impact on the organization, but the work looks different. So what appealed to you, I guess, about, you know, serving in that role? Um, let's start there. What was appealing to you about, about serving as president and CEO? Well, uh, I think above all, the team of um, other uh, leaders that led the different programs. That is, mm -hmm. um, of course, we start with family court and because that's where I came from, but of course, appeals, civil, immigration, uh, parole, uh, just the, the, you know, the, 
the number of programs and the number of people that Hiscock Legal Aid serves, um, just so impressive, so so far reaching in the community. Um, it's so very important. It's an organization that when you, when you think that ever since 1949, um, even though, you know, whatever may come or go in terms of political issues, um, anything, you know, financial issues, it's, it is an organization that the community supports. There's a, there's a, a sense that without a place like Hiscock Legal Aid in a community like Syracuse and Onondaga County, um, our democracy is, you know, really the very democracy that we um, hold dear is at stake. Um, so it's, yes, it's the day-to-day -day in court one-on-one -on -one with clients, but it's also the, not just day-to-day, -day, but month-to-month, year-to-year, decade to decade to ensure that a, a place like Legal Aid um, stays and, and stays strong. I mean, we hear a lot about no person is above the law uh, these days, but also uh, we, and we also hear about that the rule of law is what makes our democracy and Legal Aid makes sure that the rule of law is applied equally not just one way for people of means and privilege, but, but for all. And so, you know, just, it just felt, I felt like I, you know, I, I hit the lottery yeah. um, having a chance to be um, working with all the other leaders and the attorneys um, from time to time to make sure though that legal aid stayed strong. I mean, it's never been about one person though many greats have uh, served on the board and, and served at the top and in management, um, but it's been about each individual and their commitment to, our, to, to its mission and vision. And so just being able to be there to serve each individual happens to be in their different roles in the agency to keep it strong. It, but what more could I ever ask for um, as my career is starting to wind down. Well, and you're talking to Linda about moving legal aid from strength to strength, which you did. I, and I, I've worked here for a number of years. You absolutely did that. But the question I suppose is, and this is going to be a bit of a longer conversation for us. And that is you started in 2017 legal aid, you know, historically, relied on a lot of face-to-face -face contact, clients coming into the office, meeting with the attorneys and support staff. And then the pandemic happens, not just for legal aid, but for everybody. And the world sort of shifts seemingly overnight. Yeah. You were the CEO when all of this was happening. Let's start, if we can, at sort of the early days. And if I remember this right, we saw you know, China shut down, we saw parts of Europe, we saw it sort of creeping into the United States and making its way up to Syracuse. Those early days, what was it like being the person who, you know, had to make some really critically important decisions about the future of an organization without a whole lot of concrete anything, given the state mm -hmm. of the pandemic? 
Well, it was, um, you didn't have time to, to be terrified. I guess if you were, if you made a little time to be terrified, anyone within the right mind might feel that way. But actually instead it came so fast and between myself and everyone on our management team, I mean, I could mention all the names if you want me to. Certainly Greg Dewan and I sure. um, were such a, a, a good team, um, but also our, you know, of course you, Jason, and, and um, uh, excellent um, IT, you know, <laughs> in, in uh, our IT department. Um, every single uh, leader of programs um, and, and uh, even our, uh, smaller subunits within programs. So everyone on the management team getting together and thinking this through, talking it out, um, keeping an eye on the news, keeping an eye on reports and, and, and guidance. And uh, in stages, we, we tried our best to sort of get feedback from not only management, but also rank and file, as they say, you know, uh, all, all staff. Um, let's have a plan. What's our plan? How are you going to telecommute? How are we going to move our operation um, such that people can telecommute? And it was just kind of like, um, I don't know. Uh, I, I'll attribute this to the entire management team plus the staff. It would be like if if you had taken the skill of Michelangelo and put it in the hands of 80 people. <laughs> And yeah. okay, you go and you paint the Sistine Chapel and <laughs> do it in a week. And yeah. it's, it was an art form, not a science. And it was inspired yeah. from somewhere, um, from this body of people that, you know, we, there wasn't a single soul who ever said, we can't do this or, mm -hmm. Um, we'll have to close down for a day or, and I, I'll add in this, I'll add in the board too. Yeah. Um, Connor and, mm -hmm. um, Connor and Virginia, yeah. um, that, you know, Hey board, this is coming. Here's what we think we're going to do. What do you think? And getting their input too, all along the way. Um, it was inspired, inspired by our mission and our vision, and we were not going to close down. Not some, one single person wanted us to take a breather through the through the pandemic. So, I hope that answers your question. Somewhat. It, it no, it does answer my question. But I have a few more uh, because one of the things that I think is really unique and happened under your leadership is the organization continued serving people. You said you know we didn't shut down. We transitioned to a remote work environment. In a, yeah. over a very quick period of time. But the organization always kept going. There yeah. wasn't a lapse in services. There wasn't. And I guess what I would want to know from, from you, Linda, is I think in all of our careers, there's been moments that sort of test us or test our organizations or test the people around us. I would argue that COVID was a pretty big test. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm wondering through that, were there any sort of leadership lessons? Because some of the things that I've heard from you earlier are, it's really useful to have capable, talented people around you. It's, you know, we worked with the board, we worked with some of our key stakeholders. Were there any sort of lessons now that you're looking back 
that you took away from having to transition an office of around 80 people pretty quickly and under pretty stressful circumstances to an all remote workplace? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, we learned that telecommuting doesn't have to be just an exception and a rare case <laughs> that it can work for any number of circumstances and, and should, um, that you're always going to, you know, what, what one brings to the job is, is going to, what one is able to bring to the job doesn't rely in all cases that somebody's sitting at a desk mm -hmm. in in-house. Mm -hmm. At the same time, um, the there is alienation that develops and and loneliness and you know even you know depression and anxiety. Um, and so there's some anchor that needs to occur in the office, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's you know there's a balance there that um, you know, certainly learning that all or nothing isn't necessarily the way to go in any case. Um, I guess uh, technology, you know, one saying, no, that's not for me. Like, I don't do computers or I don't do email <laughs> um, yeah. because we have some very, very talented attorneys and I'm not going to, and staff, and I'm not yeah. going to make that a generational thing because it, it actually isn't. Um, yeah that you know some people do better with certain forms of communication than others um, certain forms of documentation than others do and so it's just having more of a um, open mind to eclectic ways of doing things um, certainly we would never want to go back i would imagine i mean i haven't been poking my nose in anything for a mm -hmm. while but uh, there's just nothing like seeing your client in person. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you don't need to stand on ceremony if a client simply can't get off from work or simply can't come up with money for the bus. There is no reason why you can't do an interview and get ready for a trial by phone or by um, uh, remote um, teams or or Zoom, um, there's just no need to insist that a client come into the office if that is if that's going to stand in the way of getting ready for an appearance or or a trial. So those kind of things. Yeah, no, it certainly was a test for everybody, and I know that all organizations had to quickly pivot. And as somebody who was here when that was happening, I would argue that we did a really good job. Yeah, despite the did. obstacles and the challenges that existed. And there were many for every organization. Um, I think legally did, you know, a, a really effective job at, at, at making that transition. Linda, a question that I ask everybody, we have, you know, a yearly event called Justice for All, but I also like to ask everyone, you know, Justice for All for us isn't just a tagline. I think it forms a part of who we are as an organization. And I'd like to know from you, what does justice for all mean to you? Well, I guess I want to circle back to a little bit, say a little bit more about um, the idea that, that the law needs to be 
available. The application or fair application of law needs to be available to everyone, regardless of their means. And uh, at least, you know, so far, um, that funding is not available to make that a reality for everyone. Um, and so, you know, some of the things I'm doing right now is uh, advocating for more funding for family court attorneys. But of course, this is true for all the areas of practice in, in legal aid um, and for, you know, what's, what people that work at legal aid are able to, to expect in the way of earnings or, or bonuses or what have you. And so it's just really important that we never forget that a place like legal aid in our communities, in our, in our country, they're just essential for upholding our democracy. And so we should all do everything we can to support in any way that we can, whether it be financially or otherwise, to support the continuation of an institution like, like Hiscock Legal Aid. Linda Guerin, former president and CEO of the Hiscock Legal Aid Society, thank you so much for joining us today on Justice for All. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about our work, head over to hlalaw.org. See you next time.